Hey everybody, this is Julie Powers with the Aplastic Anemia and Myelodysplastic Syndromes uh, International Foundation, or AAMDSIF. I'm the Senior Director for Patient Advocacy, and we are delighted to have you all listening to us for our podcast for patients. Um, this podcast series is brought to you by the generous support of our presenting sponsor, Celgene Corporation, and with additional support from patients, families, and friends across the United States. This podcast series is focusing on the, the experiences of patients and healthcare professionals in treating MDS and other bone marrow failure diseases. Today, we are lucky enough to have the incredible Terry Hallett, who is the mother of a bone marrow failure patient and who is going to talk to us a little bit about her family's experience in dealing with myelodysplastic syndrome. So hi, Terry. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So you want to tell us a little bit about sort of how this, what happened in your family to your son? Sure, sure. So um, fresh, Thomas, my son, who is now 23, when he was 14 and a half, freshman in high school, um, he started um, bruising a lot and just having some symptoms and losing weight and and um, feeling nauseous in the morning. So anyway, we went, uh, he got sick one day, we were eating lunch and he said, I'm going to throw up. I'm like, what? So took him into the doctor, um, did some labs, said, we'll see you on Monday. We're going to go over those labs. This was a Friday afternoon and Saturday morning, 8 a.m., got a call from a doctor saying, um, where's your son? And I'm like, well, he is going to play paintball. And he's like, oh, no, he's not. And I'm like, oh, yes, he is. It's spring break. And he goes, no, you don't understand. I'm looking at your son's lab work. And if this is what I think it is, he needs to get to the hospital I've called ahead. They're waiting for you in the emergency room at Medical City Dallas. And I'm like, what? And I said, well, can't we just go here where we live in Plano? And he said, no, if this is what I think it is, there's not a doctor in Plano that can do for him what they can do at this particular hospital. You need to get there now. Wow. And I said, okay, you have my attention. <laughs> so I looked at my son and his friend was just getting in the car with his gear. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Thomas can't go play paintball today. We have to go to the hospital. And so he... um he said, okay. And Thomas was like, dude, I'll see you in like an hour and a half. This shouldn't take too long. And um, we, I called my husband, you know, in a panic. This was before cell phones. This was before um, having uh, smartphones. You know, I just had a little flip phone. I'm like, I have no idea where this hospital is. Will you look it up online? We didn't even know where it was. And it wasn't that far. It was like 15 minutes from our home. We're really blessed. We live in a big metroplex with lots of um, doctors and specialty doctors around so we of course they were waiting for us pulled us in you know took thomas back did his labs and um you know then they they you know and i'm calling around asking for prayer and my cousin's like terry don't worry this is a they do hematology blood they specialized in that there we used to we helped a little girl that had leukemia that was there you know through our church so i was like you're right you're right they're just looking at his blood and um so anyway Fast forward, doctor comes in and he's taking a look, uh, talks to Thomas and he says, how are you even sitting up? He goes, I'm looking at your blood under the scope and you, what I see, you shouldn't even have the energy to be walking right now. And, and you were going to play paintball, you know, he goes, it's a good thing you didn't get out on that paintball court because basically he said, you know, if it was one blood thing that looked a little off we wouldn't be concerned two of them are off yeah and we start to get a little worried we might keep you here but all three of your blood counts are off he goes i'm sorry that um you can't leave here today we need to do additional testing and you need blood you need platelets and we need to admit you and so um my son is looking up at him and before the doctor walks out he goes you have any questions and my son says yes 
are you telling me I might have a mutant gene? And he looks and he goes, well, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what I'm telling you. How do you know that, Thomas? And he goes, well, I studied it in, um, in AT biology. We just got through studying the leukemia cells and, and stuff. And so he goes, well, that's possible. We'll know more when we do further testing. Let's Right now, let's get you some blood in your body, you know. So that's that was on a Sunday, February 21st, I believe it was. And we, that was in 2011. And we did not leave that hospital until July 20, it was around July 24th. My gosh. So he was in the hospital, wow, for five months. My goodness. Well, because, um, so what they did is they started getting his blood work. We were put up at that pediatric oncology floor. And they said that, um, you know, we're going to give you some blood. We're going to do a bone marrow biopsy on Monday. So we were in there on a Saturday. They did the bone marrow biopsy on Monday. They said have family members there with you. Um, A couple from maybe both sides of your family. Have them bring notepads because you're not going to take in anything that we tell you. But you need to have people there and you need to have someone taking notes. So that we did. We had family, uh, an aunt from my side, a cousin, and an aunt from Rick's side. And that's Thomas's dad. And... um, then they uh, after they gave us our results on Tuesday, and that's when they told us that Thomas had um, myeloidysplastia syndrome, and but it had probably started at as acute myeloid leukemia, but it had gone on so far that it had turned into MDS. Wow! And that he he needed to have a bone marrow transplant, that he needed to start treatment immediately, and um, that. But guess what? Your son gets to make a wish. And, you know, that's all I heard. I heard leukemia, make a wish, and, oh, Lord, my son is dying. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take in anything else. So. No, that's normal, I think, for, for, for a parent yeah. hearing that about their baby. You know. And then, you know, and then they said, Thomas, what, do you have any questions? And he goes, so when, how long will I be out of school? <laughs> and they said, you won't go back to school for a year. Wow. That's... And that's when, um, and Thomas never got upset. He never got mad through this whole thing, but that was the only time I saw a little trickle of a tear. Other than that, he stayed strong. He stayed positive. And we all did, actually. I didn't even break down and cry until we stepped out of the room. Um, so it was, um, we just knew, okay, this, so it, this was our journey. And let me back up because before when we were sent to the hospital and I knew that Thomas was probably pretty sick at this point, mm-hmm. I just said, um, I'm, we're strong believers in Christ. And, and, um, I just, I went, Oh God, please don't use our family as an example of faith that we've just been learning how to walk by faith in church. And I just prayed to God, please don't do this. And next thing I know, when he got diagnosed, I said, okay, God, here we go. This is our journey. And it sure was a journey. It <laughs> so sure was. That was on. It was. So that was the beginning of our journey. And um, then, of course, you know, we 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 realized we were going to be there as long as we were. We, you know, we kind of got, had to learn how to pack a bag to live in the hospital. We basically lived in the hospital. So this hospital was set up for, you know, parents pretty much living there with their kids, or at least one of them. Sure. Had a family room, like, you know, a place to store your food in the kitchen. Um, we basically had an air bed on the fold out couch. I didn't leave. I didn't leave. My husband, when Thomas wasn't too sick, would um, still drive to work every day from the hospital, but he didn't come home either. We both stayed there at the hospital with him. He's our only child. Of course. So, so totally and, understand. Yeah. And then they, but when they gave us the protocol, the treatment plan, it, there was no way we knew we weren't leaving. So 
when they basically said they had to wipe out his bone marrow sure. and it had start starts from scratch. So basically you're, you know, killing all the weeds in the lawn and you're going to start over. So, you know, and that they would have to find a donor. And so that's where we started. So after this terrifying um, experience of the diagnosis and the, you know, the labs were, you know, in, in those first few days where you couldn't hear any words other than a few you know, once you settled in, you know, how long was it before from the time he was hospitalized to the time that he went to transplant? Well, there was some, we, we had a few complications. It was, so we started treatment um, early, the first week in March. We were supposed to go to transplant by May 31st. So that was the plan. Okay. So he was going to have 28 rounds of chemo in 10 days. Every four hours, they were pumping a new chemo in his body. And um, when we got to day nine, he started really uh, retaining fluids and couldn't breathe and um, uh, was having some struggles. So we ended up going to the ICU on day nine. And then they stopped chemo. We didn't finish that 10th day of chemo. And they couldn't track down what was. They thought he had an infection. So then they said, well, we have to put him on a ventilator. So they put him on a ventilator. Um, while they were trying to track down this infection and why, why his body was ret- retaining 20 pounds of fluid. So every day it was like, what do we pray for? And they're like, you need to pray for peace. He needs to get the fluid off his body. And so that's what we did. The next day it was something else. His heart was having problems. His lungs were having problems. So he basically was in the ICU for three weeks on an oscillator. One week he was on a ventilator, then it got up to an oscillator that is where the machine is doing the breathing for you so it was pretty scary for a while and then um finally they um i'm talking day by day scary and prayers lots of prayers lots of support we had so many people coming up to that hospital and that's where i left off we had such a huge community support that really helped um so when he finally woke up it was easter sunday Mm -hmm. i like to say that he resurrected on easter sunday and because they'd taken the tube out the day before, but he finally was able to start breathing on his own. Sure. And um, so he, uh, so that was in, I'm thinking Easter ran in March that that year. Mm-hmm. So when he got out, when he woke up, he could not move anything on his body. He couldn't even move his head. He couldn't lift it. Wow. Pretty scary for him because he'd been in a coma for three weeks, medically induced. So everything was atrophied. And I did not realize that, you know, you can't even, he had to learn how to swallow again. You know, he tried um, swallowing, he couldn't. So that muscle had to be retrained. So he had to go through occupational and physical therapy um, for about three weeks. So now, not only did we not know if he was going to get out of the coma, we did not know if he was going to make it to transplant or if he was going to be healthy enough to make it to transplant. Sure. So that's what people were praying for. So once he got out and did his, started his therapy, and it was hard. It was really hard for him. Um, on top of that, he ended up having to have his gallbladder out because he got so sick from all the toxicity, I guess, from the chemo that he was in a lot of pain from his gallbladder. So yet his muscles weren't working very well, but yet he was still very sick. So he was trying to get through therapy, walking, being sick, in a lot of pain, had his gallbladder taken out. And then... Um, Let's see, we're getting close to May, th- they're closer to the transplant date, and they decided they needed to ask the, the uh, donor if they would mind bumping it okay. forward because, um, yeah, Thomas wasn't going to be well enough, to, strong enough to go to transplant yet. So 
Luckily, the don the anonymous donor who was um, signed up through the registry, uh, she was able to um, she agreed to go ahead and change her date. Wow, how and generous! So we were able, yes, yes, and and I'll tell you about her later. She's wonderful. We've met her, had a great. Uh, we yeah, we're all very close. So anyway, she changed her date. Thank goodness. So that that helped. So anyway, we got through all of that. He got healthy. I'm trying to fast forward now. I'm trying to think of all the dates. So it was getting close to transplant now in June. Okay, so sure. June around around June first now, we they decide you can go home for a weekend. Go home, get out of the hospital for a few days before going through transplant. Because when you go back to transplant, you're going to be in here anywhere from 30 days to two to three months. We really don't know. They don't know how long before you, when you go into transplant. So we did go home and it was kind of, it was just the weirdest feeling to even go home. We kind of wish we would have just stayed because once you're home, you're like, oh God, I don't want to go back. <laughs> of course. And then we had them. We were scared because we knew they were putting chemo in his body again. He was going to have nine more days of chemo before transplant. And who knows if this was going to happen again. Right. So the other thing that happened that caused, they, there was never an infection that caused Thomas to be so sick. It was a, something that was called leaky capillary syndrome. Okay. Which the doctors hadn't seen a case like that in over 20 years. So when they discovered this, they were like, now they use Thomas's case to teach the oncology nurses because they really, they were like, we, we didn't know. And it took them that long to figure it out. Um, so, yeah. So he also had that. That was probably a part of the cause from one of the chemos that he had. So um, anyway, fast forward to transplant. We went back, checked back in the hospital. And here's something that was really cool that the um, hospital had done for him, the child life group. Mm-hmm. Um they decorated his room. Had it, so we were just all like almost. We didn't know it was eerie. It was almost eerie walking back in because we had check in and it was a different floor. It was a transplant floor, so it wasn't our usual nurses that we're used to. And we knew we our home away from home. It was a whole new set of nurses, a whole different floor. This wasn't just a pediatric floor. This was all transplant patients, adults and children. Wow. So it was very. It wasn't. I don't know. It was just different. So when we walked in, we just walked in and it was like, oh my gosh, they had decorated this room in all the Dallas Cowboys stuff, all the music that Thomas likes. You know, it was just like, we just all breathed and we went, wow, they had, um, I forget, they had like an iPad for him. They had all kinds of stuff in their form. So it really did kind of take the edge off for all of us. Well, and at this point, yeah. was he 15 yet when he went to transplant? No. Okay. So he, no. So his bir- his birthday, that was spring break in February when this happened. And he his 15th birthday was going to be on um, July 26th. Okay. And we got out of the hospital on July 22nd. So we got out three days before his 15th birthday. Cool. Well, so now you guys went to transplant and how did everything go okay at transplant? It did. And we're very blessed because we were scared. I mean, I did not, I couldn't sleep even though I was right there next to him because I was just waiting for him to have a breathing problem. Sure. And they warned us, they warned us that you were going to get so sick that you might not even be able to get up to go to the bathroom. You may not, you know, you're going to, you're going to feel like you need to crawl to get to, you know, they, they, they didn't sugarcoat anything, these nurses that we know. And, you know, they were just trying to get us our mindset for it. And honestly, he got sick. He was very sick, but not nearly as sick as he got from the first round of, you know, all the pre-transplant stuff. And so even the people in the ICU, we went back to see them later. And um, they were like, wow, 
we usually see kids during transplant in the shape that you were in, but we saw you before transplant. So thank God during transplant, he never had that major, major illness. You know what I mean? He, right. he was pretty doable. And the thing was, they were taking extra precautions with him. So when he was having a hard time breathing, mm-hmm. we, I was like, even the doctor, I was like, look, you need to stop this now. You know what I mean? We're not going to go, we're not doing this game again. We're not going that far. We're not going to push it. You know, just stop it if, if he starts having any problems. And they did. There was one point they did have to stop a certain um, medication because he was having issues. Mm. Well, so. so he made it. He made it to transplant. And aside from, you know, some scary moments, it sounds like it sounds like, you know, you guys got out. So you get through transplant and, and then you get released. How long was it after transplant that he was that he was released? Okay, so after transplant, um, oh, for, day 45. Day 45. He, he, Thomas was lucky. Yes, some people are in there longer, some people are in there shorter. But so he was out day 45. So really, we were at transplant, though, for like 65 days because you're there 10 days prior before. Right. So um, day 45, he was released. and um, But he did have to go back for oncology checkups at the clinic, which is there at the hospital also, mm-hmm. just on a different floor. He had to go back like every like three times a week, I think. They had to check his blood counts. Sure. They didn't, they, they were very good. They, I mean, we were at the, God put us in the right place, I can tell you that, with doctors and nurses in hospital. So anyway, they, they would check his counts. And, um, you know, he had, to, we had to learn how to deal with, he came home with his, with his um, Proviac line. So it's not a port, you know, when, when mm-hmm. most people go for chemo, it's ports, but this is a line that hangs out. And the reason is because in transplant patients, you have to have, they have to have dual access. So not only do you have two lines hanging where you can be adding two things at once, plus you have your IVs in your arm, you know. So so anyway, so we had a port, so we had to learn how to clean that, how to flush it ourselves. Said home healthcare, come show us how to do that. And he and I kind of did that together. He had to tape it up while he showered. Luckily, he's a very, um, he's very clean and, you know, sanitary. So he, I, he's good. He's a, he's a neat boy. And we're lucky for that because he never once got an infection in his, in his line. So, you know, most teenage boys might not be that cautious. So he was. I love that. That is such a, such a parent of a, of a well, teenage you know, transplant patient thing. Yes. And especially boys. So he, um, so anyway, so we would go back and then eventually we got to go where we were going back once a week. Okay. And then, you know, eventually, you know, so it does get easier, but it, I'm going to tell you, it was, it was, um, it was okay. You know, and then he started his homeschool. So we, we had um, a teacher in our district that would come and work with him on mm-hmm. schoolwork. And so he was able to do his schoolwork and stay in some of his AP classes, which that was very important to him. And a lot of times they don't let you do that homebound, but they made an exception in Thomas's case. Sure. So um, he he was able to do that, and um, and then around day one hundred, so you know, there's several things you they tell you to look for when you are a transplant patient, and one of them is graft versus host disease. Right. You know, they say, okay, you want to have a little GVHD, but not a lot. And he started having um, stomach issues, and. Also, we did get a few hospitalizations in between there. Like if he got a cold, we were in the hospital for a few days. Of course. So I always had a bag packed, always had a bag packed, always had everything ready to roll if we had to go back to the hospital. And so, um, but yeah, so he started getting GVHD about day 100 and it affected his GI tract. They actually put us in the hospital for a week at a time for back to back thinking it was pancreatitis. And it wasn't, it was 
it was a GVHD of the liver, right? Which is rare. It another is. rare thing that doesn't usually affect the liver first, but it did in Thomas's case. So once we figured that out, it took him two weeks to figure it out. That actually the adult GI doctor came in and he said, "This looks like graft-versus-host to me." And sure enough, they started treating it with steroids, and it went away. And so then now he's on high dose steroids. And it wasn't just for that. And then he started having lung issues. So then it started affecting, he got graft versus host disease of the lungs. And so then they put him on inhalers and um, he did get some lung damage from that, not only from being on the oscillator for three weeks, but we don't know if it's probably a combination of the oscillator and then part of the graft versus host disease. But he does have some, um, on his lower left lobe of his lung has been diminished scar tissue that probably won't, you know, is not repairable. So he does see a pulmonologist regularly. But so he was on steroids for almost a year. They, every time they would try to lower the dose and get him off, he would start um, itching and he, he could feel it. His skin would start tingling and right. he would start, he would just know. Oh, and his liver enzymes would reach high. So we were going to the doctor regularly having his uh, liver enzymes checked now because of the steroids. And so um, on top of that, he started having knee problems because of the, the steroids will cause necrosis. Right. Now, everything I'm telling you are things that happen in years to come for transplant patients. Right. Everything happened within Thomas's first year. So his knees started hurting and they're like, well, we can't do anything for your knees. We knew it was the steroids that was causing the problems, but they couldn't take him off because of the graft versus substance disease. So he dealt with knee pain. They had to have custom braces and um, goodness. Now he's going back to school and he's walking around school and it's starting to really hurt him. So then we had to go see an orthopedic specialist. And um, he said, come back and see me after you're off steroids for six months and I can help you with that. We can do, it's an osteochondral allograft, Mm -hmm. which is a bone transplant of another uh, non-related donor. Right. And so um, by the time Thomas got off the steroids, and we went back to see that doctor. He could no longer help him because his knees were too damaged. He'd never done one that large. And he said, I can't, I, I can't let you be the first I'm, after everything you've been through. So um, that took me about six months of searching for a doctor to help Thomas in this big old state of Texas. And I finally found one in Houston, Texas, that um, that doctor was able to do it. And he said he'd helped one other cancer patient who just wanted to walk around college and be pain-free. And she... She was in a wheelchair. Her knees had already collapsed. Oh my goodness! Well, Thomas's were getting close to that. Yeah, he he would have he would have been in a wheelchair and knees collapsing had um, I'd not found this doctor. And so, so he had the he had the transplant. Mm-hmm, he had um, so okay. So now that was he went back to school his sophomore year, mm-hmm. the second half of the sophomore year. So he missed the second half of freshman year, first half of sophomore year. He he was homebound. So second semester sophomore years when he went back to school and then it was um his the end of junior year is when his knees really got bad but he ended up i I guess i cut some time out there because when he had the 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 surgery on his legs was senior year okay so he missed the first half of his senior year having knee transplants so he's got new knees and he's gotten you're right he does <laughs> by now surely that bone is grafted yeah. pretty much so he's got new knees and so you said so you said thomas is now 23 right correct i got that 23 and he's in college yeah he he, he went to a college that was uh, about six miles from our house which was perfect and um 
So that way he could live at home. We could make sure he got to his doctor's appointments. You know, I could still kind of keep an eye on, make sure he takes all his stuff. But he is not on any kind of, um, he's not on any anti-rejection drugs. Oh, wow. He's not on any cancer drugs. Well, the reason is, is because of the graft versus host disease, they, they took him off everything. Okay. Early. Well, so I think the thing that might be interesting to talk about just for a minute is, um, is that, you know, obviously your mom and your, you know, your husband, your, your, you know, his dad, his dad, you know, you're always going to be parents. But now that he's 23, he's, you know, legally an adult, but you've sw- kind of switched from that sort of, you know, mama bear protector role of your teenager who was, you know, having life threatening disease, you know, issues and health stuff. And you kind of moved into this more of a caregiver role. It doesn't change the fact that you're still mom, but it means that you're, you know, I I wanted to highlight what you were saying is you're still making sure that he gets to his appointments, that his medicines are taken if he needs them. So you're still managing, helping him manage those aspects of his health, right? Yes. Yes, I do. So he, uh, yes. And he, he, he's really good about it. He's good. The main thing we watch closely now is his lungs because um, if he gets any kind of a cold or uh, a cough going, he has to keep that maintained or else it can get serious. So he sees a pulmonologist regularly just to stay on maintenance drugs. He's not, he's not on an inhaler. He doesn't have asthma. He just, um, you know, it can get bad if he doesn't stay on top of it, which he does. So he's got all that under control. I just, like you said, I do, I schedule his appointments. In fact, I just had to schedule him a cardiologist appointment. He does have to see a cardiologist um, once a year now. Patients, what no no matter the age, young adult, you know, middle aged or elders, all need someone in their life to be that caregiver. And it can be a family member or a close family friend, a spouse. You know, it could be a, an adult, an adult child, or in this case, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's an awful lot to do when you're 23 years old and working and having a bit of a life now that he, you know, he lost a couple of those years in high school. So I hope that he's enjoying the college experience and now being a young adult and out in the world. A little bit. <laughs> so, so that's good. And I'm telling you why, here's an incident that just happened. He was working um, and he got up in the morning um, and said, Hey, do you mind see if you can get me? Cause he can't make calls while he's at work. And he said, geez, can you see if you can get me into the lung doctor today? I said, what's wrong? He goes, well, I coughed up a, I coughed up blood. And he went, what? And I go, did you save it? And he goes, well, yes, I did. I said, go get it. And he, and he goes, of course I did. And I go, why didn't you wake me? He goes, because you would have had me at the hospital. And I said, he goes, mom, I had it under control. I researched it. I did exactly what it told me to do. And if I didn't cough anymore, it said, just get in to see your, your pulmonologist as soon as possible the next day. So I'm telling you, please see if you can get me in. And of course, so he did. And it was a a good little ball of blood that he had coughed up. So of course, this is, you know, he he did it. I said, okay, yes, you're growing up and you're right. I would have, I would have went all crazy and Anyway, so it turned out they ran all these tests. He had to have a bronchoscopy done. They looked inside his lungs to make sure there's nothing critical going on. Of course. And um, they never did find what it, what actually caused it. But at least he did the right thing. So I think he is showing me that he is growing up now. So, well, and I But think- he, he does still come to mom first, you know, and say, hey. But that's good. And I'll tell you what else is hard. And I think I, I stay on a lot of blogs because of this. I like to give people hope mm-hmm. because, you know, with Thomas being eight years post-transplant, but a lot of people have this issue where transitioning from pediatric doctors to adult doctors, and we're still kind of in that mode. Absolutely. 
See, you can't keep seeing a pediatric oncologist forever. Right. You know what I mean? I know we're, we're kind of in that spot where sometimes I email them when he coughs up the blood. I still keep him in the loop if there's something major that happens. I'm like, hey, Thomas has this lump. You know, do you guys need to see it? I text pictures sometimes. And they're like, mom, it's okay. You know, that kind of thing. Right. But they say that it is time, you know, that he needs, by 10 years, he'll probably, he may just pop in and say hi to them and have a relationship. But we still are looking for an adult, you know, adult primary care physician and an adult, uh, the pulmonologist will probably stay with the pediatric guys for a while because they do see some adults, but it's, it's really hard to find them. But um, before we sign off, and I want to wrap up, but I do want to give a shout out to you because I think it's kind of fun how we met, if you will. We've never met in real life, but AAMDS, we started doing um, live broadcasting, our, fa- our fav- Facebook living, our patient and family conferences. And we were in, I think we were in St. Louis. And you jumped on the Facebook Live and were asking, sharing your story. Mm-hmm. And I just think that was so cool that you, you and you shared with me earlier that you watched a bunch of our conference sessions on Facebook Live. And 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 right. what a shift it is in how patients get information about bone marrow failure diseases, you know, from the days of the, you know, only in print by mail to phone calls to these days we're on Facebook Live and Instagram. So I, I think it's really neat that as a parent, you're looking at all the different channels by which you can provide hope and support to others. Doing this podcast today can give hope to a parent who's struggling with their teen who's going through transplant. You know, Thomas is alive. He's doing great. He's loves, obviously loves his family, even if mom gets a little, a little. Oh yeah. He's doing fantastic. (laughs) He's doing fantastic. It's it's amazing. He's he's actually a walking miracle is what we always say. We really do. Well, I think that's a lot of answered prayers. Absolutely. And I think it's a huge it, this, this, the, these kinds of chats that we get to have here are how you know we like to share this with our our other patients because many of them are are at the beginning stages of their journey, and so hearing from a mom who's been through it, it can give hope to others. So with that, I want to say thanks, Terry, for um for sharing all of your um, insight as a mom and and your extraordinary recall of those really difficult days, and um, for giving hope to folks um, for other parents and other pediatric patients who are going to transplant. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. It was great talking to you. Good talking to you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.